0: I welcome you in the Savior's name this morning to our adult Bible class. We're going to open the Word of God in Leviticus chapter 23, please. Leviticus 23, I'll read some of these verses, and then we'll look to the Lord in a word of prayer. So, Leviticus 23, and we will commence our reading at verse 4. So, let here the Word of the Lord. These are the feasts of the Lord even holy convocations, which ye shall proclaim in their seasons. In the fourteenth day of the first month at even is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread unto the Lord. Seven days ye must eat unleavened bread. In the first day ye shall have an holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein. But ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord seven days. In the seventh day, it is in holy convocation, ye shall do no servile work therein. Amen. We'll end our reading there, verse 8, just a short reading this morning, and we'll look to the Lord even now just in a word of prayer. So let's, let's come before the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God and eternal and loving Father, we come into thy presence We come before thee in the name of the Lord Jesus, and we approach thee upon the merits of his shed blood. We thank thee, Lord, for one who is our great high priest, one who has passed into the heavens, even Jesus, the Son of God. And we thank and bless thee, O God, for his perpetual praying for us as he pleads the merit of his blood before thy throne. And we thank thee, Lord, we're accepted in him, and we pray, O God, that thou will bless us this morning, even as we meet around thy word and thy truth. We pray, Heavenly Father, Lord, for our Sunday school. We lift up every little boy and girl before thee. And we pray, O God, that hearts will be prepared by the Spirit and at the entrance of thy words will give light and give light. O God, we pray, Father, that you would, uh, Lord, bless our Sunday school teachers and remember, Lord, our junior and senior Bible classes. Remember us here, Lord. We pray, Lord, be a profitable time. Uh, Lord, we don't want to just go through another meeting as it were but we pray Lord that the word will be of benefit to us remember those who watch online as well and we pray Lord we'll have a good start to thy day in this thy house and may it be for thine everlasting glory so hear our prayers I pray that thou would fill me with the spirit I pray that you will help me O God that thou will wash me in the Redeemer's blood afresh and Lord fill me with the promised Holy Ghost so Lord hear our prayer And do us good, shut us in, a little time with thee. For this we asked in the Saviour's precious and his worthy name. Amen. Now bread is a staple food no matter in which culture or country you find yourself. You can go in the supermarket and there's so many different types of bread on offer from all around the world. Our wee country, as it's referred to, it's known for potato bread, soda bread and wheat and bread. And there are other countries that are known for their breads. The French, they have the baguette. The Italians, they have the ciabatta. The Greeks, they have pita, The Indians have naan. Maybe you had a naan last night, I'm not too sure. And there's different breads. In Mexico, it's got its tortillas. And all this food, well, it's maybe making you hungry this morning. You maybe had a a slice of uh, potato bread fried up this morning, a Sunday morning fry. But the list goes on and on, but bread... Bread is important. Bread's a basic. It's a basic of life, and it's common to man, even though it comes in many different forms. Now, bread is mentioned many times in the Bible. It's found, obviously, at many different various meals that we read about. It's found there in the tabernacle, the service of the tabernacle in the temple. It's a word that's used often figuratively in the Scripture. For example, in Psalm 127, in the verse 2, bread was... Uh, predominantly uh, featured in the life and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. He refused the devil's temptation to turn the stones into bread. He taught his disciples to pray, Give us this day our daily bread. In Matthew chapter 15 and verse 26, he described his healing ministry as giving bread unto the children. He miraculously fed the multitudes with bread. He himself referred uh, to himself as the bread of God and the bread of life in John chapter 6. At the institution of the Lord's Supper, he declared the bread to be his broken body. The commonality of bread, it lends itself to being utilized by the Lord and in Scripture to uh, present spiritual truths before men. All over the face of the world, know. About bread, the necessity of bread, and the nourishment and the life-giving properties that it has. Now, this morning we come to study the second feast, a uh, second of the feast of the Lord, uh, as it's mentioned here in Leviticus 23, the feast of unleavened bread. In verse six, we read that on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread. Unto the Lord, seven days ye must eat unleavened bread. In the first. Ye shall have an holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein. But ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord seven days. In the seventh day is a holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein. Now once again we are given more detail over in Exodus chapter 12. Really when the feast itself was instituted. And then we have a repetition in Exodus chapter 13. And then on in Deuteronomy chapter 16. Now repetition is never superfluous in Scripture, but it is a tool that's employed for emphasis, to highlight the importance of something, to accommodate to our weakness and our inability to retain, and also our propensity to forget. And that's why so many things are repeated by the Lord in Scripture for all those different reasons. This is a fact. The fact, sorry, I should say that the feast of The unleavened bread is repeated. It gives us a good indication that it is important and it's worthy of our consideration. That's what we've been doing as we've been thinking about shadows of the Savior, firstly in Levitical offerings, and now as we're moving into the seven feasts of the Lord. So this morning we are considering the second of the seven feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now firstly, I want to bring to your attention just a preamble really concerning the feast. That's really, if you can't get a proper heading and you just want to lump a pile of things in together, that's why I've called it a preamble. But my next two points, they've got peas in it as well. But we have a preamble concerning the feast. Now, we notice once again that it is the Lord who institutes the feast. It's not Moses. There's some who would suggest, if we look at Exodus chapter 12, uh, uh, that the verse 14, it stands in relation to the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which is mentioned in the verses following. There's others uh, that they, they believe all well, it stands in relation to the Feast of the Passover, which is in the verses preceding. Verse 14 in Acts chapter 12, And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Now, I believe it does refer, because it's speaking there, it says, And this day, it's referring to the Passover but really, what can be said of the feast of the Passover can be said of the feast of unleavened bread. And frequently we find in the New Testament that the terms unleavened bread and Passover where they're they're used synonymously and interchangeably the one with the other. We think of Luke chapter twenty two in verse one. And we read there, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. And so, whatever can be said of the Feast of the Passover can be said of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In verse 14, we find there that this feast, it's really a memorial, a feast, and an ordinance. Just as the Feast of the Passover would have reminded the children of Israel of their unique deliverance out of Egypt, so did the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was something designed to keep them from forgetting The good things that the Lord had and would do for them. It was a memorial. And we see in Scripture that the Lord often, He repeatedly establishes memorials in connection with redemptive acts in order to strengthen faith, to keep it in the mind of His people. So, this feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was a memorial. It was also a a feast, a feast to the Lord. Not only was it a help to God's people, in order that they may not forget. But it was also designed to be a feast unto the Lord, designed in a manner in which people may worship, may serve, may adore, may praise the God of heaven. It was a means by which God's people could worship Him in His appointed way. So it was a memorial, it was a feast to the Lord, and it was also an ordinance. It was an ordinance the laws of the observance of the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread were given before Mount Sinai. We are told that these laws were to be kept throughout their generations. It would be a test, really, of these people's obedience, which was really an expression of their love. And that's the exact principle that the Lord Jesus himself taught in the New Testament, where he said in John 14:15. If ye love me, keep my commandments. An attendance to those things ordained by the Lord, well, that is simply an evidence of love to Him. So this unleavened bread, it was a memorial to remind God's people an aid to their faith. It was a feast to the Lord. It was a means by which God had appointed for Him to be worshipped. And it was also an ordinance. It would be a test, really, of their obedience if they would keep the law. Now, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread was one of the three spring feasts. You remember I said that in the introduction to the feast? There was three spring and there was four autumnal feasts. And there's a close connection between each of these feasts. And it's not by accident because it points out to us really the fullness of our salvation. The Passover, it points to our justification because it's when an individual trusts in the blood of the atoning Lamb, well, then they are justified from their sins. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, well, it points to a life without the leaven of sin as we grow in our sanctification. And then the Feast of the First First Fruits, well, it, it points to a time of joy and celebration at the harvest, and it speaks of that time of the resurrection, the great resurrection, when God's people shall be forever with the Lord. Their glorification. So in those three faces, a close connection, there's our justification set forth, there's our sanctification set forth, and there's our glorification set forth in each of them. Past, present, and future salvation. We have been delivered. Uh, We are being delivered. And we shall yet be delivered as we are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. One's salvation is evident by these three feasts. And as I say it in them, we see justification, sanctification, and glorification, which never can be separated. And Paul taught that so clearly in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. And you know those verses there. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, and it goes on, whom he did, and all the rest of it. And so we cannot separate those things. Those who are justified will be sanctified and will, praise God, be glorified. Now we notice here that. Uh, we mentioned this the last time in the Feast of the Passover, that it was to be kept on the fourteenth day of the month of Eve. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, well, it began the very next day, on the fifteenth day of the month. It was observed for seven days. And as I said, these two feasts, they refer to two things that can never be separated. The substitutionary death of Christ, delivering the, we could say, the Israelites from death and judgment, but also, also their deliverance from uh, Pharaoh's oppression and the bondage that they experienced in Egypt. And so it is with us. Yes, we have been delivered from the curse of the law, from death and condemnation, but also we have been delivered from the bondage of our sin. And from the oppression of the devil, we are told that salvation includes a deliverance from our vain conversation, our empty lifestyle, our meaningless way of life, First Peter chapter one, verse 18, as we're told in Titus chapter two and verse 14, that the Son of God he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. You see, there are many people, you know, they claim to know Christ. But there's no evidence of a life of holiness, that they are not distinct from the world. They claim to be justified, but there's no work of sanctification in their life by the Spirit. Well, we see here that the feast of the unleavened bread, it follows right on the heels of the Feast of the Passover and what those feasts they typified. The Passover, it portrayed the cause of deliverance, and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, it portrayed the experience or the effects of that deliverance. And they cannot, as I said, be separated. They cannot be separated. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread, it really, it portrays the life of a believer a life of faith in Christ and our experience of grace in this world. And Paul points that out in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8 concerning the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and Leaven. And we're going to come to that later in more detail. As I said, the Feast of Unleavened Bread it typifies the life of faith, which begins with the experience of of deliverance from the curse by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why the typological order is so important here. Passover, then the feast of the unleavened bread. Now, once we have received the atonement by Christ, we do enter in to a blessed Sabbath of faith. And we do cease from our own works as a means to our justification because we rest in Christ who finished the work for us. And this is typified here in the Feast of the Unleavened Bread because it began here with the observance of a Sabbath. Now, it might not necessarily have landed on a Sabbath, but it had to be observed by a Sabbath. A Sabbath was instituted because of this. We read that in Leviticus chapter 23. And the verse seven In the first day ye shall have an holy convocation, ye shall do no servile work therein. We have that again mentioned in verse sixteen of Exodus chapter twelve. And in the first day there shall be an holy convocation. So we have it there. So we notice the first the feast of the unleavened bread, it began by the observance of a Sabbath, but it also finished by the observance of a Sabbath. And we read that in verse 16. It goes on to say, And in the seventh day there shall be an holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, that only may be done of you. The feast began with an observance of a Sabbath. The feast ended with the observance of the Sabbath. And so it is with us. Our life of faith began with rest in Christ. And our life of faith, it shall end in eternal rest with Christ. And so that's why I say this Feast of the Unleavened Bread, it typifies the life of faith in the believer, that life of our grace of God in this world. And we'll come to work this out as we move on through this feast. Revelation 14 and verse 13 We read these words, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. So our life of faith began with rest in the Lord. Our life of faith will end in eternal rest with the Lord. Those are our two blessings sabbaths of rest so that's the preamble really concerning this feast but secondly this morning i want to think about the picture the picture it presents the picture this feast presents now one of the reasons why the israelites were directed to eat unleavened bread is that there was no time to allow the leavening process to take place in the dough leaven as you probably all are aware is yeast, and yeast that makes the bread dough rise. And by baking unleavened bread, the children of Israel, they were not only obeying God, they were also confessing their trust in God that He would indeed deliver them speedily, that there wouldn't be time to allow the bread to rise. The first mention that we have of unleavened bread in Scripture, is found in Genesis chapter 19. And the verse 3, and this uh, reminds us and, uh, and brings to us the, the point of this haste and speed and, uh, and being ready. It's, we read in that verse, Genesis 19, the verse 3, And he, that's Abraham, he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned in unto him, and entered into his house. And he made, a f- made them a feast, and then bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. That's the account of the three visitors who came to Abraham. They landed unexpectedly at his tent door, and so he wasn't really prepared for them coming, and he had to make a feast, or rather Sarah had to make a feast in uh, in a hurry, and she made a meal for them, and that meant that unleavened bread had to be made for that meal. Now, in the Bible, leaven is used as a type or a picture of sin. The Mosaic law, it forbade the offering of leaven Uh, And the grain offerings. Read about that in Leviticus chapter 2 in the verse 11. There's no leaven to be in those grain offerings. In fact, no yeast was allowed in any sacrifice that was burnt upon the altar. None whatsoever. In Leviticus chapter 6 in the verse 17, we learn that the grain offering for Aaron and his sons was not to contain any leaven and it was to be eaten in the holy place. And the reason that leaven is used in Scripture as a picture for sin is because of its corrupting influence, we might call it, the influence that it has. See, only a little leaven is required to leaven the whole lump. Read about that in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 9. And what they usually did, they didn't have the shops we have, a little box of yeast with its measuring spoon, But what they would have done, they would have kept a little bit of leavened dough from bread mixture that they had. And when they went to mix up a new batch for making bread, when they had the time, they wanted that bread that rises up, they would have taken that little lump and they would have put it into that mixture and mixed it all through. And then they would have taken a a little lump out of that mixture before they baked it and they would have kept it. And so a little lump was passed on from one batch of bread to the next. That's what happened. And that would have infected, as as I said, if we use the word infected, the whole. And that's much like sin. See, a sinful nature has been inherited from our fathers. Original sin is passed on to us. And it's from that original sin that flows or spreads all the effects and the corrupting influence of sin in our lives. Leaven, it's a small thing as well, and, and it's often undetected. We can't really see yeast, but we can see the dough rising. And so it is with sin. Like leaven, sin often begins small in the life. It's subtle. It's almost undetectable. But soon the effects are seen. And and one of the effects of, of leaven and sin is to puff up. Now the Apostle Paul, and it's quite interesting, in his epistle of 1 Corinthians, and that's where we're going to get to the mention of leaven, but he does use the expression puffed up five times in that epistle. Seems to be that he's dealing with a particular aspect of sin there. Sin was in the church, and the problem was there was a puffing up among the members. They were boasting. They were bragging. When we're told in the Word that God resists the pride, it's to the humble that He gives grace. Leaven, it also spreads quickly. and permeates the whole lump. And sin... We have to say, if it's left unchecked, well, it can soon quickly overtake the life of an individual, even the life of a believer. It can overrun a family. It can consume a family very quickly. It can spread in a church very quickly. What started out as something small, only confined to an individual or a few people, well, it won't be long until it spreads maybe to the whole. Now, if leaven is a picture of sin and its corruption, then on leaven bread, it must be a picture of Jesus Christ. It has to be a picture of our Savior. He is the bread of life. In John 6, it's a classic portion concerning Christ being the bread. He speaks of Himself as being the manna. The bread which cometh down from from heaven and giveth life to the world. Christ was without the leaven of sin, his incarnation and his virgin birth. It preserved him from inheriting original sin. He obviously had absolutely no traces of sin, even in its minutest form, because if he had, like leaven, it would have affected the whole. It would have burst forth in his life, in his words, in his deeds in his attitude, but he was pure, he was sinless, he knew no sin, in him is no sin, and he is without sin. And I've already touched on the sinlessness of Christ before in a previous study, and I don't need to go over that. But the unleavened bread is obviously a picture here of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the unleavened bread that the Jews use today, when they observe the Passover and this feast, it's bread that's called matzah. And that comes from the Hebrew word that's translated in our authorised version, unleavened bread. And that's a word that, uh, really the root root word of that Hebrew word, it it means to suck or to drain out. And you can see the picture there. To suck or to drain out. Well, that means something then goes flat. And that's the type of bread that we have here. It's a flat, cracker-like bread. And the Jews, they use it today, and it's striped with holes pierced in it. Deuteronomy chapter 16, and the verse 13, we find there that the unleavened bread, it's referred to as the bread of affliction. Now, yes, it would have reminded the Israelites of their affliction in Egypt, but surely it pointed forward to the bread of life. Who would be pierced upon the cross, who would be striped, uh, striped by the lash of the whip, who would be afflicted for our sakes upon the cross. It would have pointed that it would have pictured the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the sufferings of Christ that is the sustenance of the saints. And so that's the picture it presents. 11, well, it's a picture of sin. But the unleavened bread is a picture of our blessed Savior. But thirdly and finally this morning, the purging this feast prescribes. So there's the picture it presents and the purging it prescribes. Let's turn over to Acts chapter 13. And let's read verse 7. Verse 6, we'll read that as well. The purging it prescribes tells us there, seven days thou shalt eat unleavened bread, and in the seventh day shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days. There shall no uh, no leavened bread be seen with thee, neither shall there be leaven seen with thee in all thy quarters." Now we notice three things here. No leavened bread was to be eaten. No leavened bread was to be seen. And no leavened bread was allowed in their territory. It wasn't allowed in their own homes. And in order for that to happen, the Israelites, they had to go through a process of getting rid of the leaven. And that's called nullification. To this day, Jews practice the ritual of nullification to some degree or another. Now, this began on the evening before Passover. All leaven was to be removed from the homes. Everything in the house was thoroughly washed, scrubbed, and cleaned. That would have included the walls, the ceilings, the floors, the furniture, the cabinets. The cooking ware was boiled in water. Special utensils were used that had not been contaminated with leaven. Any leaven that was found in the home was thrown away. Now, once the cleaning was complete, the family would have participated in a ceremony called the search for the leaven. The head of the home, he gave a prayer about removing hidden or unnoticed leaven and proceeds then to search for any remnants of leaven that was remaining. Now, when the searcher or if the searcher discovered leaven, he was careful not to touch it. To avoid contact, the ritual, they still practice today, they take a little feather and they brush the leaven onto a small wooden spoon. And then they put that leaven into a bag. And when they're satisfied that all the leaven is found, they take that bag with the feather, with the wooden spoon, and they burn it with a candle. So you can see that this was a thorough process. Now, remember that this is a spring feast. And this may be the origin of the custom of what we call the spring clean. That's what went on. They thoroughly cleaned the house to get rid of any trace of leaven. Now, coming now to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and here the Apostle Paul, he leans on the analogy of the feasts of the Passover and unleavened bread for instruction in the life of the believer. Remember here, he's dealing with this Corinthian church, and I've mentioned to you that five times in this epistle, he uses this expression of being puffed up, pride, a result of sin. And so he's leaning heavily on the analogy, the imagery of the feasts of the Passover and unleavened bread to give us instruction. In verse 7, this is what He said. We'll go to verse 6. He says there, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? And he says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, how is it that we spiritually keep this feast of the unleavened bread? Well, simply this, by purging sin out of our lives. Paul tells us that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us, And the result of that is we are, it says there, ye are unleavened because Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. We are unleavened in Him. We are purified. We are washed. And since that is the case, since we are unleavened in Him, that's our standing. We're cleansed. We're washed. Well, then we're to live in a manner that presents that truth that we are pure, that we are washed, that we have been cleansed. Now, you and I know that no Christian is sinlessly perfect this side of heaven. 1 John 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Then down in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. But even though this is the case, and we do know daily defilement, it is the believer's responsibility and it is the true believer's heart's desire to put away sin, to put off the old man, to say no to ungodliness and worldly lusts, and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is talking about here when he says, purge out the old leaven out of your life. That's what he writes about over in Ephesians chapter four. There he speaks about putting off, in verse 22. In verse 25, he speaks about putting away and any less certain sins, and that's exactly what the Israelites they did in their homes. They put away the leaven out of their households. Now this is all concerned with the doctrine of mortification. What is mortification? Well, it is the putting to death, or we could say the eradicating, of one's old sinful nature, the old self against which we continually struggle. This is the reality of indwelling sin. But we're not to allow it to linger there. The Jews, they had to make sure there was no leaven seen with them. No leaven in their household. No leaven partaking. They had to be so thorough in purging their house of all leaven. We need to be thorough in that process too. It is the struggle, as I said, of indwelling sin. and, And Paul the Apostle speaks about that in Romans chapter 7. This mortification that takes place in the lives of believers who, who, while they've been set free from sin's condemnation, they are daily and continually by the power of the indwelling Spirit dying more and more unto sin and living more and more unto righteousness. Now, the context, we can't avoid the context of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. It deals with the sin of a man who had sexual relationship with his stepmother. And that threatened to destroy the church, testimony of the church. And dress, drastic measures were necessary. The man, he had to be expelled from the fellowship. And in doing so, the church would be removing. So Paul says... Look at chapter 5. It's it reported, uh, it reported commonly that there is, is fornication among you. And such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And down in verse 6, they were tolerating us. They were allowing us. And that's when Paul says, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? And by tolerating the man in their midst who was practicing and engaged in this open, flagrant sin that was even worse than the unconverted Gentiles, well, then the church was not living up to their status in the Lord. They were not living up to the fact that Christ, their Passover, had made them unleavened or pure and clean by excommunicating the man. It would enable the church in Corinth to maintain the witness that Christ had died to make them holy. Church discipline is something that is designed, of course, to protect the purity of the body of Christ. It was also designed with a warning and a protection to the hearts of men. Paul, when when he speaks of church discipline, as he applies it here in 1 Corinthians 5, he sees it as a way that this man might be won back from the wiles of Satan, while at the same time protecting the purity of the church. Now, this discipline, it's alluded to in Exodus chapter 12. If you go back there. Exodus chapter 12. And at the end of verse 15... We, we read and we are told that anyone who eats leaven, well, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. Now, that is a reference to the Old Testament church discipline. The free is cut off from Israel, it's used 36 times in the first five books of the Bible. And it's mostly used in, in connection with violation of God's law, in connection with worship, and sexual immorality. And that's when the words are used uh, the most, in the most cases a violation of God's law concerning worship and immorality. And those two areas, they are considered so important that a gross offense that required a person to be cut off from Israel. And it shows us how serious these ordinances were to be taken if an Israel trifled with them in any manner, if he formulated his own way, thought he could worship God in whatever manner, and say, well, I'll not take that bit of that feast. I'll, I'll incorporate my own ideas. Well, they would find themselves cut off from the worship of God, and they would be ostracized from the congregation of Israel. So that is the putting away of sin on a corporate level. And we need to always do that. That's what church oversight is set up for. But we also must do this on a personal level. We need to search out and put away the sins out of our own lives. However, this is something we cannot do ourselves. We need the Lord's help to search our hearts. Why is that? Well, we would tend to go easy on ourselves we would not see the mote that is in our eye, while we would see the beam that is in our brother's eye. And that's why the psalmist prayed, Search me, O God, and know my heart and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. It's good for us, yes, to take stock, but we need help in this. We need the Lord to search our hearts, to get it right into the very deep recesses of our thoughts and our intents. And how does the Lord do that? Well, He searches us by the light of His Word and by the operation of the Spirit of God. That's how. You think back to that ritual of nullification. How diligent the Jews searched their house and how careful they were to avoid the leaven using a feather and a wooden spoon. And that's how diligent you and I ought to be, how careful we ought to be to avoid sin. Why? Because we are unleavened in the Lord. He's our Passover who's been sacrificed for us. Time's running away, but just to mention, in the New Testament, we have a number of leavens that we are to avoid, and that we are to purge out of our lives if they're present there. Number one, the leaven of the Pharisees. i just give them to you quickly. We find this in Luke chapter 12 and verse 1. Christ says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. That's the leaven of hypocrisy. Matthew 23, The Lord He rebuked strongly those hypocrites and exposed them. For the wicked sinners that they truly were. They had a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. And we're not to be hypocritical in a Christian profession. We're not to say one thing and do another. That's leaven we are to avoid. We're to purge out of our life. Then we have the leaven of the Sadducees Sadducees. That's found in Matthew 16, 11 and 12. What was the leaven of the Sadducees? Well that was rationalism and liberalism and unbelief and self-sufficiency. They denied the supernatural. They had a proud assumption that everything could be explained in terms of what you see and what you taste and touch and feel and smell. They believed there's no power beyond the power of man, and that man was sufficient in and of himself. And that implies that they didn't need God. That's 11 we need to avoid. Unbelief, self sufficiency, liberalism, rationalism. See, a little speck of that leaven can leaven the whole lump. We have then the leaven of Herod or the Herodians. You read about that in Mark chapter 8 and verse 15. What about the Herodians? Well, they live for pleasure, for comfort, luxury, and prestige and status. The Herodians, they live to be seen and recognized and, and applauded by men. That's the leaven of worldliness and materialism and politicizing. We're warned against being conformed to this world. It's a leaven we need to purge out. We're warned against materialism. We're not to lay up treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, and three thieves break through and steal. We're to lay up treasures in heaven. We're not to be involved in politicizing. Now, I don't mean the political realm. If you want to go down that route and the Lord's led you, well, that's the Lord's will. But what does that mean? Well, Herod, he was called the fox. He lived to please the Jews and the Gentiles. A man pleaser. That's 11 we are to avoid. We are to live to please and obey God. Then in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 8, there's the leaven of malice. We're not to have that hatred towards others, treating them with contempt. They're disposable to us. Then there's the leaven of wickedness. That's also found in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 8. And that specifically refers to sensual lusts that are reflected on ungodly attitude and behavior. Surely when we consider this list of leavens that are found in the New Testament, there's little traces of it in our own hearts, and that ought to grieve us. Because of the corrupting influence it can have. And needs to be purged out. And how is that done, brethren and sisters? Well, the answer is by the cross. That's how we purge indwelling sin out of our life. It's by the cross. We take those sins that the Spirit has searched out and the Word has revealed to us, and we take them to the cross. We confess them to Christ, and we ask Christ to give us victory over those sins because He has died for them. Hebrews 9. And the verse 14 it tells us how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It's by the cross. As I conclude, I must briefly mention that only was the leaven to be taken out of the home. But unleavened bread was to be feasted upon. It was bread of nourishment. The Christian life, it's not simply removing evil. Yes, we must do that. But it's replacing it with what? Christlikeness, righteousness, joy, and peace, and all the other benefits of grace that He gives. We're not to leave ourselves a spiritual vacuum. Once those things are purged out, by the victory of the cross where the filler lies with all the other blessed graces and virtues that Christ has purchased for us as we nourish ourselves upon the one who is unleavened bread. The feast of the unleavened bread, the preamble, the pitcher, and the purging. May the Lord bless us study to our hearts, and may He ensure that we even go through the ritual of nullification daily, weekly, as the Spirit uses the Word to search our hearts. And we take those sins to the cross that they're purged out. Praise God for for the final purging. Just before death, when our souls are fully and entirely purged and we enter into glory, May the Lord bless His Word to our hearts. Let's, let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Father, we pray that You'll make us aware to the leaven of sin in our lives, how small and undetectable that it can be at times. But Lord, we pray like the psalmist, Search me, O God. Lord, and, and know our heart. And get right into our very thoughts. The Word of God is the implement to do that. Divides, discerns between those thoughts and the intents of the heart. Lord, then help us to take those sins to the cross. To be purged by the blood. Give us victory, Lord. Help us, Lord, to keep this feast spiritually in our lives. We thank Thee for our rest of faith in Christ. And we thank you for that eternal rest with Christ. And Lord, help us to live in a manner that glorifies thee. Lord, hear our prayer. and Take us, Lord, into morning worship fill fullness of thy spirit. And do our hearts good. For this we ask in the Savior's precious name. Amen.